Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. The pillar for this morning in our series called Pillars is one of the best. It's the Apostle Paul. Paul Jacobs will be speaking to us about the life and conversion of this well-known apostle, focusing ultimately on what Paul's motivation for ministry really was, and then challenging us to examine what is our motivation. Thanks for listening. Well, in this series that we're looking at, uh, I want you to know you have probably the best pillar to be examined today in the Apostle Paul. Please welcome Paul Jacobs as he comes this morning. Are you ran? <laughs> Morning, everyone. Morning. Uh, I mentioned to my sister this morning. I said, uh, with the wind blowing like this, these these are people that just have a thirst for the Lord. We're not here out of obligation. We are here because we love the Lord and we love each other. And um, that's kind of what Paul talks about in his letter. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, we're so sheltered here in Segola, Michigan. Uh, praise God for his goodness that way. Imagine with me for just a moment that you're in downtown Portland, Oregon. It's nighttime and people are marching in the streets. Thousands of people for over a hundred days. They're carrying signs, shouting, burning cars in the streets and beating on people from the left and the right and the police. Men and women full of rage and hatred, some of them physically accosting others, and some of them standing as witnesses. Witnesses to death and destruction. And some who are witnesses who agree with and support the violence taking place. And what can we say about the hearts of these witnesses? Let's listen to a similar incident in the book of Acts. Stephen has just rebuked the high priest and the Sanhedrin, and they're mad with anger for him. We read in Acts chapter 7. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is our first introduction to a man named Saul in the New Testament. This first introduction to a man who had his heart hardened, his heart hardened to Jesus and his followers. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come here today together to pray with gratitude for all your creation and for forming us in your image. Lord, we appreciate your family gathered here together in your name. We thank you for your word. Quiet our hearts, Lord. Remove us from the busy distractions of our world. Prepare us to hear your word. Soften our hearts for you, Lord. 
open us to change. Open our eyes, Lord, to create in us a pure heart and to renew a steadfast spirit within us, a heart for you, Lord Jesus. Teach us with your word. Draw us closer to you. Lead us in your ways. Lord, I pray today that your words would be mine and that they would be pleasing to you in keeping with your sacred scriptures. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So, before we get into uh, the heart of the Apostle Paul this morning, let's look at what God says about the heart. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10, The heart is deceitful above all things, and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind, to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Our hearts are deceitful. We should know that. But look at how important the condition of the heart is to God. He searches the heart and examines the mind. And he gives us what our deeds deserve. Now, I take that as being a little bit scary. Can you imagine how would your life be if you got what you really, truly deserved? And from Ezekiel chapter 36, our, our reading today, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. We need a heart transplant. We need a heart that is in tune with God's word and his will rather than our own will. And you've heard it said before, but it's so true. God is the heart surgeon. So who was the Apostle Paul before his conversion? In his own words, he explains his experience and qualifications to the brothers and sisters in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So, Paul had so much to boast about, and he talks about everything that he had done and all of his accomplishments and and uh, really in the in human eyes and when you look at the flesh Paul was an amazing person and he knew it God oftentimes uses the most unlikely person Paul was a persecutor of Christians Paul was very intelligent he studied he knew the word he studied under a man named Gamaliel who was one of the most famous rabbis of the time. So he had great schooling. He understood the law, and he realized, according to the law, he was nearly perfect. We'll see that that's, that changes. I have to tell you that um, for much of my life, I placed my confidence in the flesh. 
ashamedly, and I tell you this with shame today, I look back at all the things I held high and could boast in. I was an A student, president of the National Honor Society, most valuable player in football and track, and I had a fast car with an amplifier and speakers. I recall the last, my last time in that car. My friend Jeff and I had just left the homecoming dance for one last spin around Lake Antoine on our way home. On top of the world, you see, I had caught the winning touchdown pass that, that night at the game. I was a mountaineer above mountaineers. That car was fast. Did I mention it was a rainy night? We missed the very first turn in the road, hit the ditch, launched off of a driveway, were airborne for more than 80 feet, and landed between a telephone pole and a traffic sign, skidded across the road again, and stopped within inches of Lake Antoine. The state policeman who arrived at the scene told me, there was someone else with you in the car tonight. I had no idea what he meant at the time. In our New Testament reading today, we heard about the Apostle Paul's miraculous transformation on the road to Damascus. What do we learn about Paul's new heart in his words? From 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And from Philippians, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Paul here speaks about really his remarkable heart change. At one time he was first highly educated, honored by so many people, um, set out to do an important job. He was sent out to persecute the young Christian church. But now that he's conscious of his sins, he's no longer first, he's the worst and he knows it. Not second, not third, but last. He speaks with humility 
not extreme pride or hubris. Now, what does he boast in? He boasts in Jesus, not in himself. He acknowledges Christ's mercy and patience for him. His eyes are open to his ignorance, and he accepts that the one who he has persecuted is now the one who gives him the power. Christ gives him the power to serve Jesus in Jesus' kingdom. My Damascus moment came in, in 2003 during my first visit to Grace Church in Gladstone, Michigan, or my other Grace. I clearly remember the pastor's words, and I quote, You all have a secret sin in your hearts. Today I ask that every person here come to the front, fall to your knee, and confess to God and repent of your sin. I repented of my sins that day, and, and I've never been the same. I try to seek Jesus in all that I do. I thirst for his word. I desire the fellowship of my Christian brothers and sisters. I trust Jesus completely through the trials, and there have been many. This wasn't just a one-time feeling that I had either. My whole life, I looked at the weather is bad, the kids are busy, we can't get to church. And from that day on, I cannot wait to be here with all of you every single Sunday and every day in between. So what did the what did the Apostle Paul live for? In Paul's letter to the Philippians, our sermon text today, he reveals to them what his life's mission has become and what he wanted their mission, our mission, to become, the expansion of the gospel. He's writing this letter from prison, probably in Rome, awaiting trial. And he has the expectation that he will be freed, having the opportunity to minister to the church in Philippi again. He's also aware there's a chance he may be executed and not see them again. The church in Philippi was special to Paul as it was the first church he formed in Europe. So let's read. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. So let's, let's just break this text down. 
Paul starts, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul here is asking for their prayers for deliverance. He is a little bit vague, maybe intentionally. There's two ideas at play here. The idea of his deliverance physically from his bonds in prison where he is. But additionally, possible deliverance in the sense of eternal salvation. He may be executed and he may go to meet the Lord. But Paul here is confident in writing his letter that God's provision will be sufficient for him either way. In verse 20, Paul proclaims that whether by life or by death, Christ will be exalted. So Paul will honor Christ in his life, but he also hopes to even honor him in the way he dies. He's expectant that in death and at the time of his judgment, he will not be ashamed, for he will have lived his life well. Verse 21, this is, this is my favorite verse in the passage. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think I love this because it says so much in so few words. In life, Paul doesn't seek his own comfort or advancement, but he seeks the advancement of Christ's kingdom. In life, he chooses to serve Christ. In death, he will rejoice in Christ's presence. In verse 22, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So Paul shows us that he is conflicted. He's torn between the two ideas. The idea that to live means a lifetime of fruitful labor for Christ, which is what he desires, and he knows that the Philippians need him. If he should depart, he'll be with Christ. How much better can that be? How much better could we hope for than to be in God's presence? Verse 25, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me again Paul states that he's confident that their prayers and Christ's spirit will keep him around and allow him to pour more of himself into the church at Philippi they still need him and his encouragement with this he knows their ability to boldly proclaim the saving grace of Jesus to a watching world Will only increase. So Paul's life becomes a model for us of a service-driven life. So what do you live for? Your work, material, wealth, recognition, hobbies, obsessions, becoming quote, a good person. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. 
is your mind set on earthly things? Paul says sometimes our God is our stomach. We desire things that fill us up physically, not spiritually. If it tastes good, we want it. If it feels good, we want it. But we take glory sometimes in that. But that's really our shame. He says their glory is in their shame. And so these shameful things, which are far less than uh, what we would contrast a life with Christ, they are so, so much less. Those shameful things, do we take glory in those? So according to Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is like a mathematical, logical truth statement. There's only one solution that makes the equation true. If you substitute riches for Christ, when you die, it's not gain, it's all gone. If you substitute professional football, when you die, it is not gain, it is all gone. If you substitute recognition or accomplishment, when you die, it is not gain, it is all gone. Only by living for Christ is this equation true. To live is Christ and to die is gain. So where do we take this? Where do we go from here? How do we apply this in our daily lives? For death to be gain, you need a new heart. How does that happen? There's three parts to that. First, repent and turn from your sin, your old loves. I suggest when you're ready, and I wouldn't wait too long, to find a quiet place, get down on a knee, confess your sins to God, and repent of your sins. Sin no more. Secondly, accept God's cleansing forgiveness. Once you've given up your sin, do not hold on to it. Let it go. Christ died for all of your sins, all of our sins, every sin we've ever committed and every sin that will ever be committed for all of us. Accept his cleansing forgiveness. And thirdly, follow the leadership of the Spirit and instruction of the Word. I've been told when you pray, don't just speak when you pray. Some of prayer should be listening. We need to listen to the Spirit of God. Sometimes it's hard to listen when we're just asking or just praying. So spend quiet time. Spend time in the Word. God's Word is powerful. If you want to know Him, read His Word. For death to be gained, secondly, make it your goal to know Jesus. From verse 23, be with Christ, which is better by far. Make it your goal to know Jesus. And again, for death to be gained, number three, invest in the eternal. In verses 22 and 25, in fruitful labor, 
for your progress and joy in the faith. What are you living for? And many of you here would, would say that you would die for Christ, but would you live for him? And Paul said, for me to live is Christ. How many of you grew up with a Monopoly game in the house? Remember that little corner on the board? What did it say? Pass, go, collect, $200. And remember those little tokens? Which one did you, which one were you? The race car, the thimble, the wheelbarrow, the battleship, and remember all the money. What was the largest bill? 500. What color was what color was the $500 bill? Orange. <laughs> and those green houses and red hotels. And which properties did you always want to own? Boardwalk and Park Place. And we played this game at home for hours until it got late. Then dad came up, he called up to us and he said, it's time for bed. And he'd take the game board, fold it in half and funnel all of the cars, the money, the properties back into the box and put the lid on it. Someday our Heavenly Father will call down to you. It's time for bed. And the game is over. Let's pray. Lord God, you created us and you created our hearts. And Lord, for some reason, some of our hearts are hearts of stone. But we pray today that you will turn all of our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Hearts that are warm, that beat for you, Lord, that long for you. Lord, we ask that uh, your word would continue to be a guide for us, that we would seek you out, that we would seek to know your word better, that we would seek to look for the direction of your Holy Spirit, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you will protect us all as we leave this place that you will keep your word on our mind and on our tongue. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.